All right, thank you, Larry, very much. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke 5. Would you do that? Turn to Luke chapter 5. Um, with these sessions, we just have a few minutes together, and so I'll, I'll be here uh, afterwards for questions, and, and I think over on the hangar as well. So I'm not going to do a lot of uh, preliminary remarks here. I want to jump right into the session. That's what you're here for. Uh, but I am pleased to have my wife here with me, uh, Jenny Lee, and one of my deacons, Farron, and his wife, Emily. And this is their first time um, on campus here, and so thankful that they could be uh, with me um, and uh, have been pastoring Fellowship Baptist Church uh, just for the last couple of years. Uh, I was on staff there with my dad for 16 years and then took over the pastorate. My dad uh, got saved as a teenager uh, in Fellowship Baptist Church when he was picked up on a bus and uh, then ended up being on staff for 19 years himself and then being the pastor for 20 years before uh, just transitioning out of the lead pastor position. Now God's using him uh, to travel and, and encourage churches along the way. And uh, so enough about me. Let's, let's jump right in. Shifting from an inward-focused church to an outward-focused church. What I'd like to do for the next few minutes is give a key principle, uh, base it on a key passage, uh, tell you a little bit about our story uh, at Fellowship Baptist Church in Liberal of how we've made this shift uh, in the last couple of decades. Um, and, uh, and then I want to give some practical insights there at the end that I think uh, might be a help to you in your ministry. Just, just by way of introduction, I, I want to be super clear. The reason why I'm going to Scripture is because I, I want the idea today to be anchored in the Bible, uh, lest you think that the authority is, is my ideas or that the authority comes from from Fellowship Baptist Church. Um, it, it doesn't. It comes from God's Word. I think this principle uh, is, is birthed in Jesus' ministry, and then it flows into the early church and all through the epistles. Um, and so I want to I wanna really spend time in this little passage of Scripture uh, to show you where, where we get this idea that churches ought to have uh, an outward-focused ministry. So let's start with the key principle. A church's focus will determine a church's pursuit. A church's focus will determine a church's pursuit. I think you'd agree that one of the strongest influences on our behavior is our eyesight. I can remember working uh, for Men's Warehouse when I was studying in Bible college preparing for ministry. And uh, remember that they would bring this crew of three or four people into the store once a month or so to deck out these mannequins that they would put in the window. Uh, just the right shirt and tie and suit combinations, you know. And, and, and it would happen a lot. People would walk by and then they'd, they'd see that mannequin. They'd walk in the store and they'd say, I want what's on that mannequin. And we'd get them what's on the mannequin. And two or three times they would bring the tie back and say, hey, the, it didn't look the same on me as it did on the mannequin. And, and what they didn't see was that that crew of people came in and they, they adjusted the lighting, which you can't see from the outside of the store, to shine on that shirt and tie, and it made it, it, made it pop. It made it look better than it really was. And, and, and they, they invest in this lighting because they know that our eyesight affects our behavior. It affects our choices. And the same is true for the lost sinners that we see every day at the grocery store, at the gas station, at the gym, hopefully at our church every Sunday. How you see a sinner will strongly influence how you pursue that sinner. Your focus determines your pursuit. I want to show you how this is played out in Jesus' ministry. 
Here's the key passage. Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 32. Jesus saw a sinner. How he saw the sinner influenced how he pursued the sinner. Look at verse 27 of Luke chapter 5. And after these things, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. Now, it's important to understand who the sinner was. Of course, we know his name was Levi, but the text tells us that he was a publican. Publicans are more than just tax collectors. They were practically mobsters in their day. In fact, tax collectors like Levi were so disreputable, so, so notorious for their dishonesty that they weren't even allowed to be witnesses in court. And no one could trust their testimony. So I think it's safe to say that Levi didn't get asked to speak at too many career days at his local elementary school. It gets worse, though, because the moment Levi became a publican, uh, he would have been alienated from his family. So his mom and dad would stop talking to him altogether. They'd stop referring to him in conversations. They'd stop inviting him over for holidays. It gets even worse than that. He wasn't even allowed, really, to worship in the temple. Publicans were so hated by Jews that they had less access to the temple worship than the Gentiles did. This was Levi. He was hated by virtually everyone. His parents hated him. His countrymen hated him. And the kids he grew up with hated him. But while all society was repulsed by this man, Jesus wasn't. Jesus sought after Levi. Now you would expect to read in verse 27 that Jesus saw Levi sitting at the receipt of custom and he passed him by. He walked around. But it doesn't. It says that Jesus moved in his direction. He came close to him. He talked with him. He invited him to be his follower. And it didn't even stop there. Jesus moved into Levi's house. Not for a private meal with Levi, but for a feast with other publicans and sinners. Here's the question. Why would Jesus make such a socially risky move to eat and hang out with a bunch of sinners who were nicknamed sinners, by the way, not because they just sinned on the weekends, but because they had a lifestyle of immorality and the, the best term people could come up with to describe this group of people is, well, they're sinners. Why would Jesus move toward this kind of crowd? Why would he step into the world of somebody like Levi, who parents told their kids to stay away from? Well, here's why. Because of the way he saw him. You should underline the word saw in verse 27. He saw Levi, then he pursued Levi. You see the principle? His focus determined his pursuit. Lest you think this is just one instance, you can go to Mark chapter 1 and, and see where, where Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee and he saw Simon and Andrew's brother. A couple verses later, he went a little further and he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And we know it follows that. Jesus saw them and invited them to follow him and their life was turned upside down and, and their world was turned upside down because of their influence. In Mark chapter 2, when he saw the faith of those those friends that lowered their buddy down on the stretcher through the roof, when Jesus saw them, he said to the sick of palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee. Wouldn't you agree Jesus did some amazing things in people's lives? We want to impact people the way Jesus impacted people. Here's what I'm learning. Doing what Jesus did begins with seeing what Jesus saw. So how did he see him? How did his perspective of Levi influence his pursuit of Levi. Well, the text answers that question. Look down at verse 30. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do ye eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners 
to repentance. So Jesus uses the analogy of a physician to explain why he got close to Levi. It's because he saw Levi like a doctor sees his patients. As someone who is sick and in need of healing, when Jesus passed by Levi's toll booth that afternoon, he didn't just see a crook. He didn't just see a traitor. He didn't just see a cheat. He saw a man whose soul wasn't well. And he, like any doctor would, moved toward the sick man with a remedy. It reminds me of, of a group of nurses that we have as members of our church. And uh, they had to endure the whole COVID thing in, in 2020 at our hospital, which is totally overran there in Seward County. And, and one of the nurses, she's actually a, a floor manager. And, and she told me that, that in the, the kind of the middle of that pandemic, the CEO of the hospital had a, had a meeting with all the nurses, um, all the nurse managers, and, and told them that should we run out of personal protective equipment, that, that we are not required to make you go into the patient's room at that point. So you would, you would be entering into the room um, at your own risk, but you're not made to do so. And, and Tammy told me that, that in unison, all the, the, the nurse managers said, no, we're going into the rooms. Now, now, why would they do that? Because they're nurses. This is what they signed up for. They signed up to help people who are sick. And this is the idea that Jesus is getting across to the Pharisees. In essence, he tells them that it makes as much sense for us to stay away from sinners as it does for a doctor to stay away from sick people. Jesus says, here's why I'm moving into Levi's world. Here's why I'm going to his house, because I see him through the eyes of a doctor. I see a man whose soul God could heal. I see a man whose hurts that God could mend. I see a man whose heart God could change. I see a man whose past God could redeem. I see a man whose habits God could break. I, I see a man whose sin God, for, God would forgive. With the eyes of a doctor, Jesus stepped into the world of a sinner. And that's what will happen when we see sinners the same way that Jesus did. We'll move into their world. We'll go to them. We won't wait for them to come to us. We'll pursue them. So the clear implication is that, that if a church or a pastor is, is inward focused, the fundamental problem isn't a lack of time or lack of people or lack of money, or lack of resources, the fundamental problem is how that church or pastor sees sinners. It's a focus problem. They don't see sinners through the eyes of a doctor. They may see sinners through the eyes of a Pharisee. Our church had a, a focus problem for many years, and before I jump into this story, um, I want you to know that my dad should probably be the one giving this session um, but, but I've ran all of this through him, and he actually helped me articulate this um, like I'm going to today. So I so appreciate my dad and the, the healthy church that I inherited. Uh, but to be honest with you, he did not in inherit a healthy church. God used him to, to create that. Fellowship Baptist Church was started in 1955. Um, it started, as all churches do, with, with an outward focus. A, a church doesn't get built unless they go after people. But eventually the church grew to a point where its focus started to slowly change from its community to each other, from integration to isolation. And I'm not saying the church didn't welcome sinners because they did so long as the sinners came to them. 
They just didn't go get the sinners. Sinners were kind of off limits. And to be clear, I'm not even saying that that Fellowship Baptist Church ceased to be missions-minded in the sense that they gave thousands of dollars every year through faith promise missions giving. But even though they were given to see souls saved around the world, they, they weren't going across the street to reach the soul. My dad was the associate pastor for 19 years under his mentor. Um, then became the pastor for another 20, as I said, and he would tell you that he was never expected to get out of his office to go out into the community and integrate himself into the life of a sinner. He was expected to welcome a sinner when they came in the auditorium, but not move into a sinner's world. Well, in 2000, when my dad became the lead pastor of the church, he began to hear about Lancaster Baptist Church. In 2004 is when he first heard about Paul Chapel and began to read about everything that God was doing on this campus, and he was intrigued. He, he was motivated to register for the conference and come out here. Didn't bring anybody with him, just came out by himself because of everything he heard God was doing. In one of the evening ser services, Pastor Chapel uh, organized all the folks from, from this community who had been saved through the ministry of Lancaster Baptist Church in the last year to come to the platform. And so they did. According to my dad, the entire platform was filled. The front of the platform was full as well. My dad said this moved him deeply. It inspired him. To his testimony, he says it convicted him because he said, if I went home and did this at Fellowship Baptist Church, I'm not sure anybody would come to the platform. Pastor Chapel talked about how these new converts were reached through community involvement. They were reached because the staff and members of Lancaster Baptist left this property and went into the world of a sinner. They, they weren't all saved because they came to a special day on property. Most of them were brought to Christ after having been pursued by a member of this church. But when my dad got home, he immediately began to pray about how God could use him to integrate our church into the community as Lancaster has, has found themselves as such a presence here. One of the options that entered to his mind was to become a, a chaplain for the police department. We have a police officer there at that time that was a member of our church. And a couple months later, he was able to get my dad through that process. My dad became a chaplain of the Liberal Police Department. Fast forward two years to 2006, and because the police department was so impressed by how my dad just integrated his life into the life of the officers and was there for him, they asked him if he wanted to become a part-time officer. And so he agreed to do that. He went off to academy, trained. He's still a fully certified officer to this day. He worked last night. 64-year-old man on the streets. He loves it. Well, the good news is since then, over 25 officers or officer family members have been saved, discipled, and baptized. It's 2006 when I came on staff at Fellowship after I studied for the ministry, and my dad told me, hey, I, I've, I've kind of forged a path into the police department. I want you to do the same thing with our public high school. I'll spare you the details to that story, but after several years of trying my best, God finally opened up some really big doors, and it's almost like it happened overnight. Our our, our youth group went from 20 to over 100 every Wednesday night, most coming from our local high school. Fast forward to today, and since 2000, it's like a full circle moment for me because since 2004 when my dad came to this conference, um, our church has more than doubled in our small town of 19,000 people. And the Lord allowed us to relocate to a 70,000 square foot building, and we paid it off last year. And now there's rarely a Sunday uh, that we don't have multiple first-time guests in our small little town.
See, when, when the focus shifted in the pastor's heart, the focus shifted in the pastoral staff's heart and finally made its way into the heart of our church. And, and it took a while to get there, and it takes a, a lot of constant attention to stay there. But our church's mission, week in and week out, is to help people find and follow Jesus. And to stay outward focused is, is our goal. I'm indebted to my dad. I, I, I really think he should be giving this session, if he's able to be here today, uh, for, for, for turning that tide in our church. Uh, with that being said, let me give you just a couple practical things, and, and then I'll let you go. And again, we're not the authority on this at all, uh, but some of this might be a help to you. How do you shift the focus of your church from, from being inward to being outward? First of all, do this. Realize where you are at currently. Letter A, where are we as a church? Ask yourself that question. Honestly, ask yourself that question. Where are we as a church? For, for fellowship, I'm just going to be real honest with you. The only presence we had in our community for a long time was a building. That's it. Now, here's what's sad about that. We had a presence among other churches and fellowships and Bible colleges outside of our community. But what good is it to be known and to have influence on hundreds of other people who live miles away from your building if you're not known and don't have influence on those that live on your same block? This was largely due to our church having a bad stigma in our community for a long time. In a small community, you can't afford that. We're viewed as mean and, and exclusive, and this is exaggerative, but, but it was their perspective. We were cultish in some ways. And, and most of the time, those labels were well-deserved and, and sadly were sometimes worn almost as a badge of honor. Um, there was a message preached annually at our church for many years, and you want to know what the title is? Here comes Santa Claus hopping down the bunny trail carrying the great pumpkin. That gives you an idea of what we made a big deal about. So, so, so we really had some work to do as far as our image was concerned. We had to change our image without changing our message. We had to learn to be Baptist without being mad about it. And here's what we've learned. Bad stigma trumps good doctrine. It didn't matter that we preached the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth because our community's image of us made it hard to get them to come hear the truth in the first place. And just to be clear, we still preach the truth. Line by line, precept by precept. But we had to be honest with ourselves about how people viewed us. And I really think if, if you're going to change your church's focus, this is where you have to begin with some really hard questions. Where is your church currently at and why? There's another question. This is probably more personal. Where am I as a pastor? Where am I as a pastor? If you've ever been to Disney World with children, I'm sorry, first of all, but you probably know about that ride, Small World. It's, it's that little boat. How many have taken that ride? Yeah, I'm, it's a terrible ride. You get on that boat, right, and they've got all these dolls that are dressed in various outfits and from different parts of the world, and they're singing, it's a small world after all. And that song's really nice for like 10 seconds. And then it's really old. By the end of the, of the ride, you're, you're really tired of your small, small world. Sometimes pastors live in a small, small world. It can be them, their staff, and their sermon notes five days a week, and in their pulpit on Sundays. And if we're not careful, we can go an entire week or more without ever getting out of the office to pursue a center. That's why when we onboard new pastoral staff members 
at fellowship were very clear that our expectation for them is to get personally involved in something outside of our church, in our community. They have to pick something that they're going to plug into that is not a ministry of our church. Integrate themselves. Some of those things, my wife, last 15 years, has been an advocate for the Domestic Violence Center of Seward County. So she gets called out sometimes in the middle of the night by our police station, and, and, and there's a lady that's been beat by her husband, and she, she goes right there on the, in the house, on scene, and she's able to pray with those ladies and able to offer counsel to those ladies, and there's a shelter house that she can take them to. And she has done that for over 15 years now. The director of the Domestic Violence Center got saved several years ago because of their involvement there. Uh, I, I'm the chairman of a, of, a, of a board called Leadership Liberal. Uh, and and that's, that's basically a, an organization where I teach servant leadership principles to different leaders in our community every other year. And we bring in different speakers throughout the off years and, and provide that. And um, every, every time that we have this class, there's 35 community leaders and there's city councilmen that come and and the hospital CEO came last time, the superintendent for the school district, principals and administrators from public schools, uh, the police chief came. So we, we've been able to really connect with, with people in our, our, our community that have influence. Some of our, our guys have had their CDL, so they're bus drivers for USD 480, our school district. Some have gotten involved in Big Brothers Big Sisters. Some have volunteered on the local shelter board. Some, some have volunteered in the Chamber of Commerce and, and, and connected with business Folks, some, some have uh, volunteered on the board of Grace Place Pregnancy Center. I'm the, you might think I'm carnal, but I'm the president of Liberal Baseball Association right now. My son is part of a competitive baseball league, and, and I coach, and they asked me to be um, a, a president of that board. And you might think that that's a waste of time, uh, but another coach that I've been working on for three years got saved last Easter. I would have never met him, never met him if I didn't coach baseball, and I wasn't on that board. Would have never met him. I had an opportunity to get out of my office and to get on a ball field with sinners. That's their world. My office isn't their world. I had to go to, to them. And, and our staff is expected to do the same thing. I just, I just really am convinced that positioning your, your church in the community, shifting your church's focus to being outward is something that must be led by the pastor. Your people won't go where you're not willing to. Here's the second thing I want you to consider reevaluate how you measure success. Reevaluate how you measure success. Now, we often view church or outreach success in terms of Sunday attendance and baptisms and giving. And listen, those are important metrics. I think we ought to have real tangible, concrete goals. Um, those are great ways to, to, to measure progress. But when it comes to shifting the focus, if you really want to know if your church is outward focused, it's not by seeing how much you had on a big day. Um, let me give you a couple, couple thoughts here. Letter A, measure ministry success in terms of engagement, not results. Engagement. And I'm not just talking about like the, the planned door knocking times or outreach efforts that you have. Those are good. God blesses those. Keep doing those. We do them. I'm talking about your people getting engaged organically in the community, integrating themselves into the life of a sinner for the purpose of meeting that sinner, loving on that sinner, and getting that sinner to church. Measure that. That's how you know. If, if it's in the DNA of your church, then they'll do it even when it's not a planned time. Letter B, ministry success should not be based solely on how many people come in on Sunday, but on how many Christians go out Monday through Saturday. If all we do is 
is measure our success by big days, then we're missing it. We're not outward focused because a lot of people show up on Easter Sunday, our open house, or on friend day. That's just what happens when churches collectively try to get people to come in. We're outward focused when we go to them, when we get into their world, and we love on them where they're at. That leads me to the third point, redefine ministry. I'm not talking about going outside the bounds of Scripture or anything weird like that. Here's what I'm talking about. Letter A, promote integration, not isolation. Promote these things. Put this in your language. Put this in your sermons. Get this in the DNA of your leadership team. I'm afraid that through the years in our efforts to rightly emphasize a life of separation, we've unwittingly fostered a lifestyle of isolation. And let me be clear, I'm all about living separated lives. So clear in Scripture that we ought to. Brother Chapel's that portion of Brother Chapel's message about sanctification. I was amening that. I agree with that. But there is a difference between separation and isolation. We can be in the world and not of the world. We can be connected to the world and not conformed. I mean, Jesus prayed for this in regards to his disciples. John 17, 15, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. Remember this? But thou shouldest keep them from the evil. He didn't want them to be insulated or isolated. He wanted them to be protected while they were doing the work of the Great Commission. Listen to Apostle Paul's example in Acts 17, verse 16 and 17. I think it'll be on the screen. Now, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw, here's his focus, he saw the city. Holy given to idolatry. What you see affects what you do. Therefore, disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. So he not only taught in the synagogue, he engaged people in the marketplace every single day. You know you're outward focused when you're in the marketplace. That's not your office. It's not my office. It's not in the conference room. It's in the marketplace. We have what, what we call liberal love events. And, and this is what we've used to integrate our, our church into our community. And lest you think that liberal means our, our philosophy or anything like that, let me explain it real quick. It's the name of our city, name of our town. And, and the reason why we're called liberal is because there's a guy named Seymour Rogers that, that lived out in the middle of nowhere, where liberal is now, and, and he had this well of water. And when passerbys came and they needed water, he was generous in giving them water for no charge, and, and they coined this phrase after him, that's mighty liberal of you. And, and so it's all about liberality in that sense. And, and so that's where we got our name. We played off the name of our city that we want to be generous and liberal in our love to, to our, our city. But one of the ways that we've, we've, we've done that is we've had like a gas buy down where we'll go to a, a local gas station and basically tell them that we will pay for all the gas in the next one hour. And we promote that. We don't promote it very long, but we, we promote it an hour before, and we're not going to do that right now either. We're not that liberal. <laughs> There's a lid to our liberality. Um, but but we, we do a gas buyout, and, and so they come through the pump, and then our people are there, and we, we clean their windshields, and we give them their gas, and then we say, hey, it's been paid for, and then we have these little liberal love cards. And it says that you've been showed an act of liberal love from Fellowship Baptist Church today. Would love to see you sometime at a service on Sunday. Um, has our church information, that kind of thing on it. And, and that gets our people out there in a way that they're very comfortable serving. And it also is a means to get the gospel in their hands. We've done floats and prays, drive through pizza giveaways at our church, single mom oil change. Do it every Mother's Day. Uh, for all single moms, we, we do free oil changes um, at our church. 
coffee and donut deliveries. I mean, you, you, you know all these things, I'm sure. Um, we, just this morning, our facilities opened up to about 96 employees from our uh, hospital, our regional hospital there in our county where they, where they use our facilities to, to do training and, and all of that. And so there, there's just all these tangible ways um, that, that you can use to integrate your church um, into your community besides just the basic ways that, that we've done for years of canvassing and door knocking and, and that kind of thing. You don't have to go away from any of that, but, but man, if you want to get this outward focus where it's like the DNA of your church, it needs to be more than just come on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, take a map and go out. If you really want it, want it to be a part of who your people are, they need regular, concrete, tangible ways to do these things. And here's what's great about that. Even a young Christian is comfortable going and filling up somebody's gas. Right? It's, it's hard to get them comfortable to go to a door, but they're really comfortable filling up somebody's gas. Uh, letter B, write this down. Establish a ministry of presence, not just a ministry of preaching. Lest you think I'm diminishing preaching, and I, I preach expositionally through books of the Bible. I don't need to prove myself in that, but I don't want you to think I'm, I'm diminishing. That's a big deal at our church. Um, but their outreach goes just beyond that. It's been our experience at Fellowship that through our ministry of service and, and benevolence and generosity to our community, um, that doesn't always lead to opportunities for immediate evangelism. And, and that's okay. Not every event has to have a sermon to be you know, deemed successful. Everything we do should be a means to, to, to the end of getting the gospel to the lost, but sometimes an event is more about positioning ourselves in people's lives, becoming a presence in our community so people know who we are. And so then we can have the opportunity to share the gospel with them more effectively when that time comes. I, I read something that a pastor confessed. you got to listen to this. He said it was a wake-up call for us when a local nonprofit did a quality of life study in our community. This document, he said, looked at schools, businesses, and all kinds of needs. In the middle of it, there was a list of 10 churches, and ours was nowhere on the map. We realized that if our building were to burn to the ground that day, nobody would care. Your degree of impact in your community will only be to the level of your presence in your community. People need to know you before they're going to listen to you. That's why it's important to redefine ministry as not always being organized outreach efforts, or, or, or big days at our church. Those are great. God will use it. But, but an outward-focused church focuses constantly on creating a presence in their community through integration, and that doesn't always include a three-point sermon. So, so as you're trying to shift the focus of your church from being inward to outward, you should start, number one, realize where you currently are as a church and as a pastor. Number two, reevaluate how you measure success, not by the attendance on Sunday, but by the engagement of your members in the life of their community on Monday. Then redefine ministry as integration, not isolation, as a ministry of presence, as well as a ministry of preaching. If you do all those things, I think God will help you uh, see a harvest. But here's the truth, and I'll be done. All of that takes time. Which is why I've got the last point that seems kind of cliche, but it's really true. Remain persistent. It took five years According to my dad's testimony, I was there to see it all. It took five years for our church to catch on to this idea of being outward focused, outside of just organized times. Of course, it took leadership in the pulpit, uh, but in order for our people to buy in, it had to be led consistently for a long time. They had to see it in action. 
And then they had to be given these regular tangible opportunities to participate. And over time, our integration and presence started to compound and eventually started to yield a pretty big harvest of souls. It's kind of like making small deposits in your, your retirement account, which I don't even like to think about right now. But um, you do that long enough, it'll start compounding. And, and, and you make these small deposits long enough in your community, and it'll start compounding. James Clear in his book, Atomic Habits, I would encourage you to read that book. He says this. This is awesome. Imagine that you have an ice cube sitting on the table in front of you. The room is cold. You can see your breath. It's currently 25 degrees. Ever so slowly, the room begins to heat up 26 degrees, 27, 28. The ice cube is on the table in front of you still, 29 degrees, 30, 31. Still nothing has happened. Then 32 degrees. The ice begins to melt. A one-degree shift, he says, seemingly no different from the temperature increases before it, has unlocked a huge change. And it's true. This pattern shows up everywhere. Cancer spends, they say, 80% of its life undetectable, then takes over the body in months. I read where bamboo can barely be seen for the first five years as it builds these extensive root systems underground before it explodes 90 feet into the air within six weeks. Here's the point. Tangible results might not happen for a while, but don't quit. You'll reap what you sow. God blesses the soul-winning efforts of his people over time. San Antonio Spurs have a quote in their locker room. And it says this, when nothing seems to help, I go and look at a stone cutter hammering away at his rock, perhaps a hundred times without as much as a crack showing in it. Yet at the hundred and first blow, it'll split in two. And I know it wasn't that last blow that did it, but all that had gone before. So just keep chiseling. Keep integrating yourself in your community. Watch how God over time will honor your effort. It won't happen overnight. It will happen over time. 2004, my dad sat in a room just like this, in this on this exact campus, and his eye affected his heart. And he saw a church that wasn't inward focused. Saw a church that was outward focused and not compromising at the same time. And he said, that needs to be Fellowship Baptist Church in liberal Kansas. And I'm drinking from vineyards in the large part I didn't plant. Because a pastor was here and went back and put into practice uh, what God laid on his heart here. And he was patient and persistent. And he experienced some pushback, a lot of it. But over time, he knew what God was leading him to do. And now we're reaping the benefits of that to this day. So, so thankful uh, for, for his leadership. Thank you for coming today. I, I think we were going to do a, a, a question and answer, but Br Brother Larry said, since we started 15 minutes late, don't worry about it. So, uh, but Brother Dean Miller has all the answers um, that, that you, you could possibly want. So just go do your own question and answer with him. He's got 45 minutes or so. He'll skip lunch and and uh, show you how to build a church, right? Yeah, that's right. Can I pray with you real quick? And then uh, we'll be dismissed. I'll, I'll hang around if you have any questions. Lord, I love you. Thank you for being kind to us and gracious. And uh, Lord, I'm, I'm thankful that, that years ago um, you, you did a work uh, on this campus and my dad's heart that led to a work in my heart. And you, you just opened up a whole new world of ministry. Uh, for us and what that looks like to be integrated and not isolated. And uh, Lord, it's, it's a lot funner when, when you're reaching people 
And uh, Lord, not all of it is about, about the results at the end of the day. Um, Lord, it's just fun. It's fun being engaged with, with sinners uh, in a way where we can just slowly see the light turn on uh, in their mind and them to be able to understand and grasp the gospel, to believe in Jesus Christ. And I, I pray if there's pastors or pastors' wives or full-time Christian workers in here and it, they really ask themselves that question, where am I? As a pastor, I pray that you would help them to be honest with themselves. But I pray that we would think about all of our churches. Where are we really at? How many of our people bring people to church with them? Lord, I pray that you would help us to ask some hard questions that will maybe lead to some transformation. If there's, if there's another Bill Prater sitting somewhere around this campus seeing Lancaster Baptist Church for the very first time, Lord, I pray that you would do in their heart what you did in my dad's heart. And an entire community would reap the benefit of that. Thank you for this conference, for the way it's helped us and blessed us and stirred us. I pray to continue to do that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you all. You're dismissed.